0: Hi, this is Ed Begley Jr. And you're listening to Everything Fab Four on Salon.com.
1: To Everything Fab Four, a podcast focused on fun and intelligent stories about the Beatles. I'm your host, Ken Womack, music culture columnist for Salon.com and a Beatles scholar and historian. No other band, or popular phenomenon for that matter, has enjoyed the global impact the Beatles have and continue to have more than 50 years later. They are part of our human fabric. They created music that continues to bring people together. And just about everyone has their own Beatles story to tell. Some that are surprisingly deep and unexpected. This show seeks to draw those stories out in interesting and insightful ways. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.
0: They were influenced by all the the, the rock and roll black blues singers they were influenced by them and they tell you that literally that's where they got it from chuck berry uh, you know all of those uh, the rock and roll people pat boone was the, the taker of all takers <laughs> with fats domino which was amazing who would buy those songs by pat boone after fats domino sang them <laughs> they were number one records
1: today's guest is darlene love an american singer An actress. Born as Darlene Wright, Love began singing as a child with her local church choir. In 1962, she began recording with producer Phil Spector, who renamed her Darlene Love. She sang lead on He's a Rebel, which topped the Billboard charts, and He's Sure the Boy I Love, both of which were credited to the Crystals. She was soon a highly sought after vocalist and worked with many rock and soul legends of the 1960s, including Sam Cooke. Dion, Warwick, Bill Medley, The Beach Boys, Elvis Presley, Tom Jones, and Sonny and Cher. During the 1970s, Love continued to work as a backup singer before taking a break in order to raise her family. In 1973, she recorded vocals as a cheerleader along with Michelle Phillips for the Cheech and Chong single, Basketball Jones, which peaked at number 15 on the Billboard charts. Love returned to music in the early 1980s to an appreciative audience she thought had long since forgotten her. She had been performing at venues like The Roxy in LA, and it was a conversation with Steven Van Zandt that gave her the confidence to go to New York, where she began performing in 1982 at venues such as The Bottom Line. Back in L.A., she continued performing in small clubs while working as a maid in Beverly Hills. One day, while she was cleaning one of the homes, she heard her song, Christmas Baby, Please Come Home, on the radio. She took this as a sign that she needed to change her life and go back to singing. In subsequent years, Love was invited annually by David Letterman to sing Christmas Baby, Please Come Home, on the late show for the Christmas holidays. Letterman dubbed her the Christmas Queen. As an actress, Love performed in various Broadway productions. She had a recurring role as Roger Murtaugh's wife in the Lethal Weapon film series. She also sang Ooh Wee Baby in the 1980 movie The Idol Maker. Ranked among Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Singers, Love was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2011. She is featured in the Oscar-winning documentary film 20 Feet from Stardom, for which she won a Grammy Award. Welcome, Darlene Love. I am so excited about your upcoming Christmas shows. Can you tell me a little bit about what's planned? You are, after all, the queen of Christmas. <laughs> I knew you were going to do that.
0: <laughs> Somehow I knew you were going to fit that in. <laughs> well, you know, I'm really excited to be back out on the road again. Uh, I start uh, not really my Christmas show, but I do a a, a cruise Every year, well, I have just for the last couple of years, but uh, we couldn't do it because of the the virus. But uh, I start that at the end of the month, and it's called uh, Malt Shop Cruise. It's the people of the '60s that do the cruise, and uh, it's for a week. And I do it because it prepares me because I sing one ship one song for the whole, I mean one show for the whole cruise. And then after that it's all vacation for me in hot and nice weather. (laughs) And yeah, and then we have our regular people, and I told my agent, I said, "Now listen, you can't be giving me no twenty shows in no month no more. I ain't, I ain't ready for that
1: no more." <laughs> well, Merry Christmas to you.
0: <laughs> we have a few, and you know the ones that call me all the time—they uh, know to call like, way ahead of time before all the newbies get on. You know, so I'm doing <laughs> all of those. So it's like from one end of of the, of, of uh, New York to to the coast, and I do the whole area. And it just seems to be more and more people trying to get me to do their Christmas shows. I say, well, you might have to go to January and February. The last Christmas show I do is usually in January. So that's it. Now people are starting to pick me up for, for Valentine's Day because they can't get <laughs> me for Christmas.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the, the Queen of Valentine's Day would be a nice.
0: <laughs> that's a lot of fun because I do a lot of love songs. But the Christmas show is fun for me because that's actually my favorite season. I love doing Christmas and, you know, it it gives so much joy to everybody. And I think that's the reason I really love it, love doing it too. everybody tries to be loving and not hateful or destructive or anything like that. So it's really great to be able to start my Christmas tours again.
1: Well, that sounds like the right world to be living in, the one that you just described, where we're
0: yeah, right. <laughs> loving and
1: not hateful. And uh, we live in such an interesting time, you know, with uh, I, I thinking about you as the queen of Christmas and how Christmas is growing and not diminishing in terms of uh its impact annually you know you've got the hallmark channel who has christmas in july yes i've (laughs) even done that one a couple years (laughs) oh no kidding oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) so um how did you i know we're going back more than 60 years here but how did you get started in this whole business
0: well, you know what? Um, I didn't. We didn't. I was with a group called The Blossoms. We didn't realize it at the time, but we were actually helping people get started in this business as background singers. They they would tell us, you know, we can't afford you guys, but we would really like for you to help us a little bit, you know, get us uh you know, help us get started. Because uh, as background singers back in the late 50s and the early 60s, we were in a union called AFTRA. And you had to be in the union to work. But every now and then we would do some undercover work (laughs) (laughs) and give them a helping hand, you know what I'm saying? And then as life went on, it was really great to be able to help people who wanted to be in this business, you know, and it's kind of sad today because that link, getting people in the business is not there anymore. You have to really want to do it. Therefore, bringing Chris into this business is really a wonderful thing for me because you don't have... Uh, singers that really want to be a part of really somebody helping them anymore. I mean, really, really helping them. You know, seeing if you can find somebody to write for them, or if 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 you can write, that's even better. But using my name to help somebody in this to be in this business that really is it's not about the fame and the money, but just want to be who I am, a part of making this this business great, and that's. That's the reason why I'm helping Chris, because he has that spirit in him. He wants to be in this business. He wants to help. And we need more people like Chris in this business to keep us steady. You know, we're, we're losing it. But then you have somebody like Chris who comes along, who really believes in it, who wants to do it. So I'm always ready and steady to help somebody like that. So therefore, presence is wonderful.
1: So tell me more about Chris and and how you're able to be that conduit.
0: Chris is uh, a person that I was introduced to by my, um, not my agent, my publicist. He said uh, he he saw this young man and he was really great and he loves the music. And then this, the young man started uh, talking about people in the 60s. And I went, wow, that sounds like somebody I want (laughs) to meet. You know, that music to me, has brought forth what's going on today, whether they believe it or not. That was rock and roll. That's how it all started. And with Chris doing a Christmas album was even better for me, you know, because that's my season. That's what I want to do. That's really what I want to do to help. So since it's my season, it's a great time to help somebody like Chris, because I do a lot of interviews. I do a, a lot of speaking uh, around the country, you know, going to hospitals and talking to children about what Christmas means. So being with Chris, him being that type of person, and I've been around him now a few times, and being in the studio with him when we were recording this song, it was just wow. You you really have a great voice, and I and I see you have a love for this music. We don't and have is, go ahead.
1: And this is Chris Young, right? Uh, who's who's that d- did a cover of christmas this of of your signature one of your signature songs right
0: right right no he didn't do my song he did a song that I love so very very much we we recorded actually uh my uh christmas gift um uh and you know it was actually a song that I hadn't heard in a long time, and when we went into the studio to record this song it was like wow, Chris, I'm going to put this in my show. (laughs) (laughs) Steal it from me, but I'm going to put a new song in my Christmas show because the words and the meaning from the songs mean so much. And he just sung it so brilliantly. You know, he was trying to tell, he was, no, not trying, but he was telling me little things he wanted me to do in in the song. But then I was like, I don't want to over, you know, overshadow you what you're doing on the song. I want you to be heard too. But when they finished the mix, it was unbelievable. You know, so just knowing this young man and knowing his heart and knowing his spirit, he wants to be in this business and he wants to grow in it. And that's what he's doing right now. So I am ready and able to help an individual who wants to really do, because we get people all the time who they want me to help them, but they wanted, want me to do all the work.
1: <laughs>
0: I said, you know what? You should have met me about 30 years ago.
1: <laughs> so so who, are, who are the folks who helped you along the way as you're trying to do now by paying it back with, with Chris?
0: Well, you know, mostly it was record producers. Um, Lou Adler, who had the Mamas and the Papas. Uh, and, 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 and of course, Phil Spector. You know, I met him when I was doing Background, but he just took me as a soloist and made me a soloist with the Blossoms and all the other groups. And, uh, you know, after, after all these years, my name is still connected with Phil Spector.
1: While we're on the subject of Phil Spector, which, as you know, this is the Everything Fab Four podcast, so Phil certainly comes up on occasion. Yes, uh, you know, for producing "Let It Be" and, and of course, those great solo albums like "All Things Must Pass" and "Imagine." Um, You know, Phil has become notorious in later years. What was the Phil like whom you worked with?
0: He, He was not like the Phil Spector that ended up. I'll put it that way. He was really. Wanting to do great work, which he did, and he used unknown people and made them superstars. I mean, just as far back as going to uh, going to Sonny and Cher, both of them were all on my records. Sonny was even there trying to sing. I love him. You know, I say that about him all the time. Sonny Bono, and he was a, the percussionist. He did a lot of things uh, to help helping Phil Spector and helping us in the background with the records. And Cher was actually on my, a lot of my records singing background. So, you know, when you go back that far and you say that really, if you listen real carefully and you know Cher's voice, you can hear her singing background.
1: Uh, What's a song that our listeners could go check out that would allow them to get a glimpse of Cher?
0: Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. Oh,
1: there's a good, that's a great one.
0: And the funniest thing about that, we had to tell her, You're singing too loud. Now stop singing so loud.
1: <laughs> <laughs> she has powerful pipes, still
0: does. Oh, yeah, and still does. She still does. Yes, yes.
1: <laughs> so tell us uh, where, where did you get your start uh, when you were very, very young? What, what was the, your first glimpse of music?
0: Well, my father was a minister. He was a pastor of a church in Los Angeles, California, and I have uh, three brothers and a sister, and we were all a part of the choir in the church. So people asked us a lot of times, how do you guys sing these kind of songs this early in the morning? I, I told them to say, honey, church starts at 9 a.m. in the morning on Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> Don't wait till the afternoon to start church. We started singing early in the morning. So I think that had a lot to do with our voices being as strong as they were. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And so full. Because you have to realize back in those days, we didn't even have microphones. We were on our own.
1: <laughs> you were your own PA system, right?
0: Exactly, exactly, exactly. So that was the start of me singing. And actually, uh, I met the Blossoms, the, the girl group that was already, perform- uh, that were, that were already performing, and they were doing background work. And uh I joined their group and started singing background, which I really didn't even realize I could sing background, but in church when you had the sopranos, the altos and the, the tenors and the bass. Well you just your ear just picked up the, the voice you heard. And I picked up the, the voice of being an alto. And my sister was a a, a a a soprano and my brothers were tenors. So that's where we horned in on our harmonies and how how we sang. Uh, as a group together. And I just took that and, and brought it to the secular world. And most of all of our great singers today were from church. We didn't even realize it. But I have to tell you a little sick the church people didn't like to pay us. <laughs> they said, you are doing this to the glory of the Lord. We say, yeah, we are doing this to the glory of the Lord, but we still need to get paid. <laughs> That's a little joke. We all we shared well, a common share we have together, but uh, it all worked out.
1: And, you know, uh, speaking with folks uh, like yourself and um, really th- you know, throughout this period, the role of church as a space for singing is enormous, isn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, it's big, it's big. And really, you know, unfortunately, it's not as big as uh, it, it was back in the, the early days, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even the 80s because there is no uh, what do you call a platform anymore. It's really just choirs. But then a lot of the singers are solo singers. That's what they horn in on. And I just happened to start as a backup singer and, and went into my, my solo career. Uh, unfortunately, that, like I said, that platform is really not there anymore. So you have to find other worries to help people. You know. And I, if I can, I will help what, what, with what, what God has given me. I can share it
1: with people. We'll be back with more from Darlene Love after these messages. We're back with Darlene Love on Everything Fab Four. You know, it is when you look at the landscape now, there's just so much noise. It's it's amazing we do find new music and we're able to locate it because there's just such a tremendous amount that's always there.
0: Yes. I don't know about you, but I know the I I can't really hear the great lyrics anymore. And I, I think that's why our our, our music is going to be sustained because of not it it our just not it's just our music, but then the lyrics that were written for those songs, you know, have much staying power. Because after you dance with those records, and when you get older, you want to hear what they were saying back in those days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or you know, when you hear something spiritual like Bridge Over Troubled Water, right? You yeah. want to glory in those words
0: exactly i try to explain to people you know music is music god gave us all music it's what you do with the music you know after you after you get it you know because the music is still there there's only so many keys so many yeah. songs that you can sing it is the words that really keep you cuz i know even today you can go back and just like you, you pulled the song bridge over troubled water that wasn't supposed to be a gospel song but it certainly is
1: Oh, no, right with that piano part, and of course um, the way Art Garfunkel sings it.
0: Exactly, exactly. And then, then you have somebody like Aretha Franklin who comes back and really tears it apart into making it a possible <laughs> <beautiful, beautiful> song.
1: <laughs> yeah, she brings it. That's exactly right, and 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 takes it the rest of the way, if you exactly, will.
0: Exactly, exactly. So
1: tell us about um, the making of "He's a Rebel," which is such an iconic song, and. You know, you were paid very handsomely back in the day for that. That that seemed like a really solid, and maybe maybe circumstances are different as you remember them, but um, that had to be just a, a big moment all around before it was even released.
0: It was. You know, when we went into the studio, that was my meeting uh, of Phil Spector, my introduction to who Phil Spector was. And I knew his partner, a gentleman named Lester Sill. And uh, he introduced me to Phil and we went into the studio. He said he wanted me to sing this song, uh, but he just we really wanted me to sing the, the lead vocal on it and get the Blossoms together and do the background on the record. And I had never actually sung lead on any song yet by that time. Wow. And my my voice was so powerful, he had to like try to get me to uh, how do you say, not to try to sing so hard. And I told him, I said, well, this is the way I sing. He can understand that. But you know, what he did, it was something interesting to make my voice sound younger. He sped the track up a little bit.
1: That's it. So he did a little bit of a Verispeed or whatever you want to call it.
0: Exactly. So my, my voice wouldn't sound so
1: powerful. Well, I got to ask though, you were young, why did he need to speed up your voice?
0: Well, with that, because my voice was even at the age of 18, 19, I had a very powerful voice, but it came from from church being able to sing like that at nine o'clock in the morning.
1: Interesting. And of course-
0: And then with that, I didn't know that the song was gonna be a number one record when I went into the studio. Well, nobody really knows if the record is gonna be a number one record. But Phil, from the day we went into the studio, when he was teaching me the song, he said, this is gonna be a number one record. And by then, of course, I had been in the business as a background singer for at least four or five years when I met him. So I said, yeah, right, sure. You you must know something we don't know.
1: (laughs) What a confident guy because- at that. Oh, yeah. he'd only he only had, had
0: everything. Only he had had he one
1: number one, right? He'd only had one number one, and to know, to know him is to love him.
0: Right, and he knew he had enough confidence in himself. When he went into the studio to record anybody or any song, in his mind, this was going to be a number one record. And most wow, of well, let's,
1: let's call it what it is. He also had confidence in you.
0: Oh, well, that too. Yes, he did, because most of the songs that we did, I did like a demo of these songs, for other people in our group, he would just say, "Doll, uh, come sing this for me. I, I, I need so and so or whoever to hear the song, and I, w- I want want them to hear your voice when you're singing, it, sing it." And I would go in and I would do like a little demo track for whoever the next person is to, uh, to learn the song, because he had to teach me the song first of all. So and then when I would go in, I would sing the song after I learned it, never knowing that He's a Rebel was going to be as big as it was. You know, they did, I knew he told me it was for The Crystals. He told me when we first started doing this, that this song was gonna be for a group he had in New York called The Crystals. Uh, their mothers or uh, whoever wouldn't allow them to fly to New York because they were, I mean, California, because they were very young. I think the crystals were like 13 to 14 years old. And it oh, was not going to allow them to fly uh, to California. So I did the song for them, knowing that after four or five years of doing background singers, all the hits was I was on, I can't remember. I mean, all the failures <laughs> we were on in those years, you know what I'm saying? so I had this thing like, Man, you, this is a hundred to one shot. This is going to be a, a number one song, but he didn't care about that. He said it was going to be, and he found a way to make it, and it did become a number one record.
1: What a fantastic story! And of course, uh, part of that legend of, uh, of who he was and how he could coax those recordings out of folks,
0: yes. He was a master at it. He knew, you know, even, and and he recorded Cher, excuse me, a couple of times, but uh, to no success. But then Sonny leaves Phil Spector and he goes and he has a hit with Cher. (laughs) (laughs) So you know what? Everybody is learning behind Phil. We're picking up little things from him. You know, uh I worked for Dionne Warwick as a background singer for 10 years and she almost if you're going to steal something steal, steal the best from them.
1: <laughs> well, so let's turn to that subject because uh, uh I teach a Beatles class here on the Jersey Shore and this came up last night, mm. you know, um when we were talking about of course the Beatles and their incredible debt to African-American rhythm and blues. Mm -hmm. And I posed the question um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I uh, I, I literally said um, influence or theft, influence or theft. How do we, how do we think about something like that? Because here, these guys are, they come along right with the British invasion, Mm -hmm. the so-called British invasion. um, And in a lot of ways, Aren't they selling us back our own music?
0: You know what? My thoughts on that it's both. It's theft and uh, what was the other one you said? Theft and Influ-
1: influence.
0: Influence. I think it's both. Number 1, they were influenced by all the the, the rock and roll black blue singers, not the white ones. You know what I'm saying? They they were influenced by them, and they tell you that literally. That's where they got it from. Chuck Berry, uh, you know, all of those uh, the rock and roll people, not the 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 white their white counterpuncher. Because you have to realize the white people did today. I mean, Pat Boone was the, the taker of all takers <laughs> <laughs> with Fats Domino, which was amazing. Who would buy those songs by Pat Boone after Fats Domino sang them? <laughs> you got me. I <laughs> mean, <'cause... World> records. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but Fats it's, just it's, killed those.
0: It's, but it is true. I think it's give and take, and there's only so much. Just look at what's going on today. They're taking the old songs that we made back in the fifties and sixties and putting them in their songs. Where are you gonna go? You have to go, you know, backwards to get it, to bring it forward, because there's nothing really, I have a saying, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just how you trance different places, different faces. And we're all doing it. You know what I'm saying? They're taking it from somewhere. But the greatest thing about what the Beatles did, they gave it back. They honored us. They told us where they got all their music from. And, and they believed in so much that they were around us, you know, when they were doing all that stuff, we, they, we, we, they, they integrated us with them.
1: Yeah. And there's something to be said for that, I guess. And, uh, you know, John Lennon is, is so interesting and, you know, it's heartbreaking the way he was wrenched from the world, but he, even a few days before he died, he, he couldn't remember Beatles songs titles, but he had an encyclopedic knowledge of 50s and early 60s R&B. He could tell you the artist, the song, the B-side. He mm-hmm. knew it backwards and forwards.
0: Right. So that's what I'm talking about. They gave back to us. They didn't just take, but they also gave back. People who, had, who had probably never would have known who Chuck Berry or Fats Domino or who those black singers were. They got to know them through the Beatles. Little Richard tells the story about when he went to Europe, they were, they, they the Beatles was, was his background singers, uh musicians.
1: Oh, and they couldn't <laughs> wait to be.
0: <laughs> uh, and that's the whole thing. They were like, oh, whatever you want us to do, we'll do it. What is What is it? You know, they were excited about working with all these black artists.
1: Well, and the last song they ever play before a paying audience is "Long Tall Sally." Uh,
0: that's right.
1: <laughs> it was that central to them.
0: Exactly. So it was. A, it was a give and take. I and I don't begrudge them anything. The only thing I would say is they took over so it. A lot of the entertainers, i said, the little people lost their their groove and their music was nowhere for them to work anymore because they wanted to hear the other singers now. You know, oh, it, was
1: it, it was so overwhelming Work
0: away from the, uh, uh, the little people who had like, you know, a, a number 10 record or a number five record where they had a lot of shows and places they could work. They those all those jobs went away. But that's almost like uh like everything else. You move along, you know, it gets bigger and better. And we couldn't go to a stadium and fill up a, a stadium of 50,000 people. You know, our audience was like the little clubs, you know, three or four hundred people, you know, the Beatles and and all the other groups that came along were in stadiums. We just never thought it would be that big.
1: And who who they didn't either, right?
0: Right, exactly, exactly.
1: (laughs) So... Do you remember watching The Ed Sullivan Show in February 1964?
0: Well, of course. (laughs) That's what we did on Sunday night, black or white. (laughs) (laughs) And you know the amazing thing about it, the very last show that uh, Ed Sullivan did, The Blossoms were on it.
1: I did not know that. Tell me about that.
0: Well, it was amazing because we were doing a show called Shindig. That's how we ended up meeting a lot of the British artists. They all did that show. Even the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, they all did that television show. Our producer's name was Jack Good. He was from Europe. And uh we we were all like like wow, the Beatles, wow, the Rolling Stones, you know, we were in 64 and 65. That was when, you know, they were really coming of age. We were doing a little bit of everything. You know, so uh the producer that was producing Chindig wanted to know if he, we could we would like to do the Ed Sullivan show. I said, We've never had a hit record. What are we gonna do? And actually we did get ready, cause here I come. A friend of ours arranged the song. And uh we did that song on the Ed Sullivan show without being superstars or being having a hit record. You know, they wanted us to be on that show. So it it was amazing. Matter of fact, somebody sent it to me, and I have it on uh, on one of those download downloads that they have that they sent out. Uh That stuff never goes away. I was looking at it the other day and just laughing. Lord, look at us!
1: (laughs) Isn't it amazing? I, I try to explain this to my students, and they just don't get this world. You know, when you would see something like a performance in 1964 on television, you may not see it again for 10 years. Right. Or ever, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh That was always possible. Whereas today we have all this instant access. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Gotta-
0: you, the technology has gone way over my head. I have a friend uh, he says, I just want a phone. Just give me a phone. <laughs> Don't do nothing but call and I call them back.
1: <laughs> so did you, did you ever have an opportunity to meet any of the Beatles then?
0: Oh, I met all of them. Yes.
1: Well, tell us about that.
0: Well, it was a brief encounter because, you know, you say you've met them, but when they did the television show Shindig, you know, we were, the Blossoms were the originals on that. We were on that show every week it ran for like two years and everybody that ever thought they was a star did that show. So, and all I can say is they were four of the nicest gentlemen that I had ever met, you know, very accommodating, you know, didn't think they were who they, they were really nice being around us. They wanted us to tell them about our, we tell us about your history being in, uh, in, in in show business here in the United States. And it was, you know, we didn't get a chance to really know them all because we were doing a television show. The good thing about it, it usually took us a week to do every show that they produce, you know, you start off recording all the music and then you're inside the studio. So you're around one another all day for like three days recording and all that. So when we had a little time to get away to discuss things, that's what we would talk about who I worked with and what we did and, you know, how we did it and what did you think about this one and what did you think about that one. By the time you get ready to tell that story, they said, all right, cameras. <laughs> <laughs> So chance meeting them was just a marvelous thing. That was right at at them, the beginning of their 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 career, their peak in the 60s, 60, 64 and 65. And that's when uh we were doing that television show.
1: So you're you're a working musician. Even today, as we just talked about with Christmas, et cetera. How is it that these guys can go from she loves you and I want to hold your hand to making an album like Abbey Road? in just seven years it doesn't even seem like the same guys
0: well you know what when you are when you are when you have a talent it doesn't all come out in the beginning you you start one way because that's the way you have to start to get into business what you think people like what you think they want to hear uh just skipping back just a little bit with shindig when we started doing shindig in 1964 they had trouble getting the blossoms who were three black girls on that show because they did not think our audience would want to see three black ladies on in their living room one every week Mm. you have to start out giving them what they want You have to give it to them a little half a teaspoon, then a full teaspoon, then a tablespoon. You have to give them a little at a time. And by the time they've been in this business at least two or three years, by the time you're there, now they want to do what's in them. They want to bring that out. And that's how I believe it always happens. That's how they change their music. Stevie Wonder did it. He, you know, he started off, you know, fingertips with the harmonica. But as he grew in this business, who he was and who Stevie Wonder was inside wanted to come out. Even Michael Jackson. He was tired of doing that stuff that he had been doing all those years. Now he wanted you to see who he really was. The same thing with the Beatles. They had to grow. They were great musicians. They were great talent, great songwriters. So of course, after three or four years, they wanted to do something great. And they did. They left a legacy for all of us.
1: So we grow. Yeah, I guess that's it. Right. And thinking about yourself, then do you, are you able to look back and see moments when you started to show more of the real you? more the mill
0: the real uh, me is now when you see me on stage you see the real darling love what i think about this business how what i think about my audience what i think about people period where I didn't have time to express that or to tell about those years. Now I have the time to do it because people want to hear it. They want to listen. I'm 81 years old now. I got a whole lot of
1: stories. <laughs> <laughs> and in a way, two years your- of
0: that is is in my life has been in this business. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, so then using your culinary metaphor of you give them a half teaspoon, teaspoon, tablespoon, et cetera. In a way, you've built the appetite. Then, right? Yeah. You, you've built the audience. These years all went into building that audience, so that when you're you're doing the Christmas shows, you really have set the table.
0: It's, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. And they want to hear the stories now. Where I mean, they're older now. My audience is, is. I mean, I have four generations now in my audience, which is amazing. And they want to hear those stories now. Back. 50 years ago, they just wanted to dance. They wanted to go out and they wanted to party, you know, but now they've calmed down. Now they want to hear who you really are. Now they get to see the real person now in my shows, because now I'm speaking now from my heart and from experiences. And that's what people want to hear about today. My audience anyway.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you just described, you've got four generations. Then you have folks from very different demographics coming together at your shows
0: exactly exactly and and it's it,
1: to- it is wonderful right that you create this music all those years ago and it can find new audiences and continue to surprise us yes do you do you ever spend time with uh talking to say the college aids kids and and what they're hearing and what they're experiencing
0: I did a couple of years ago, but the and I had started on that road, which was wonderful. But then the the the, uh, the COVID hit, and then all of that came to a, a close. Because and now we're just slowly getting back into it, where people okay, they want to go out now, they want to go to shows, they want to be. And I'm I'm so happy that your audiences are still there they're just waiting for the moment for you to come back out and for them to be able to go out. Cause I still have friends that are still a little scrimmish about going out, being around a lot of people. So, you know, you have, it's going to take a while. It's probably going to take another year, you know, for all of them to start coming back again. But my, thank God, my, my ticket sales have been doing wonderful. You know, they start off and then people say, okay, yeah, well, we can go out now. We can do this. We can do that. And the same thing in our private lives. You know, we feel that we can actually go out more. You know, we can be out among people again. And, and, and that's the whole thing. And I'm sure it'll all start back up again. It's just a matter of time.
1: Well, people, as long as they're human beings, there's going yes. be, to be music.
0: And there's never going to be a time where people want to be closed in. That's not normal. Not no. seeing your friends, not being around, you know. But like I keep telling everybody, we still have to be careful. That disease hasn't gone anywhere. It's still here.
1: Oh, that's for sure. So since I've got the queen of Christmas here, what was it like to get that name from David Letterman?
0: The first time he said it, I was so shocked that he said something like that because I never really thought about that. But I was the only person that was going doing Christmas tours. Nobody else, I literally do a Christmas tour. Nobody that I know of right now did a, a Christmas tour except for Ronnie Spector other people either this is when they really slow down and don't work anymore and they pick back up at at new years but very few people do christmas tours and i've been doing my christmas tours now for over 30 years
1: and what when did they start what was the what was the first situation or venue where you you brought this this concept into being
0: the it was uh, at the bottom line there's a club at the called the bottom line in in manhattan that uh, Alan Pepper, a, a friend of ours, owned that club uh, downtown, and I started there doing a Christmas show. They came up with this idea: with the, the 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 album is so big, why don't we do a Christmas show? And I went, hmm, okay. I never even thought about it, you know. But I have four Christmas songs on that on that album. And then one of them was Christmas Baby, Please Come Home. So then I, then David Letterman came down to see that show, because Paul Schaefer played Phil Spector in that show that we did. And he invited David down to see the show. My God, that was so long ago. Whoa, when you think about it. And David came down to the show and the next night on his show, he told Paul, he said, that's the greatest Christmas song I've ever heard in my life. We need to get her because he had forgotten my name on on, on on the show, Get Her Down Here. And I thought I was going to do Christmas one time. I did it for 28 years. That's what started it.
1: <laughs> Paul Schaefer must have been a hoot pretending to be Phil.
0: Oh, Ganyan, you know, he idolized Phil. He If, if there ever was a person that was Phil Spector, it was Paul Schaefer. He just loved, he just loved, loved Phil Spector. And it was because of the music, not so much the man, but how he mastered. You know, back in those days, we only had three tracks <laughs> to work with. So the whole idea that Phil was doing all that with three tracks was mind blowing. Nobody was using three tracks. You know, multiple multiple recording, layers after layers after layers. You you really had to have a strong voice to power through what Phil was doing.
1: That's incredible.
0: (laughs) And he played Phil Spector and I told him we would have talks about Phil. I said, you're doing it just like he does it. You, you are Phil Spector.
1: (laughs) He must have loved that.
0: He did. He did. And then for, after about three or four years on, on, on the David Letterman show, and he just flat said, here is the Christmas queen. And we have her every year, Miss Darlene Love, and I was like, "Wow, okay, Dave, i love <laughs> Christmas Queen." We, you know, and we never even thought about it because, you know, Christmas Queen—they had the, the Queen of Soul, the Queen of Rock and Roll, the Queen of Blues, the Queen—but nobody ever thought about Queen of Christmas because it's almost like, you know, Jesus is the King, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm one of His so I don't need to be the queen.
1: (laughs) Everything Fab Four is presented by Salon.com, the premier news, politics, innovation, and arts website. For more information, visit everythingfab4.com, where you can learn more about our podcast and my latest Beatles-related books, including John Lennon, 1980s, The Last Days in the Life, and a forthcoming biography about beloved Beatles roadie, Mal Evans. The Everything Fab Four theme song, Seize the Day, is provided courtesy of Black Rabbit, the high-octane Beatles cover band and innovative psychedelic rock project from Rockaway Beach, Queens in New York City. Like what you heard today on Everything Fab Four? Be sure to subscribe, give us a rating, and recommend the show to your friends. Plus, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at EF4 podcast Distributed by Salon, Everything Fab Four is a Wonderwall production. Remember, it's a Beatles world and everyone has a story.